But for today, we're going to finish up this crazy little letter, aren't we? Um, Let me pray for us, and then we're going to get started on Philemon. And pray with me. Father, um, we come to you today, and and I... I, uh, as I was reading through all this letter, I'm just reminded of how we, you, you put us in so many different positions in this walk with you, God. And we thank you for that. We thank you that you trust us. We thank you that at times we are so broken and we need people to come and lift us up and refresh us in ways that, that only you can. Only, only you can create this refreshment that comes through other believers who walk alongside us. So thank you, God. Um, I don't thank you enough for those people in my world. So I thank you for this letter to remind me of that. I thank you for this letter to remind me that, um, that you sent your son to stand in the gap for me, for those places that I was on the run and um, continue to be on the run, Lord, that you are always, always there for me. So we ask you today to show us exactly what it is you want each of us to leave with. Um, we all walk in broken. We're all stumbling. Um, but Father, will you just remind us of who we are in you, not who we are in how we define ourselves. Thank you for your son. Thank you for this study. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's open up Philemon. We're going to take a look at the last half of this letter. Um, last week we covered, not last week, well, did anybody show up accidentally? I'm just curious. I'll check the video footage to see if you actually did. Um, I was thinking about you guys. We, we took a family trip. I took my teenagers and my husband and we went to New York City kind of at the last minute, which was really cool. Um, and I felt very cultured, and you'll know why in a minute, because I went to an art museum that was completely out of character for me. I'm usually just all about the pizza, the cupcakes and stuff, and we're like, let's go to a museum. That'll be so mature and grown up. Anyway, I'll tell you about that later. Um, but we had a great time, but I'll tell you this. Come about Tuesday morning, I started missing you guys. I started missing this time together, and so I, I hope you felt the same way, and, and I hope that you didn't um, just put your Bible study away like I tend to do sometimes and then have to be reminded, no, I'm, I need to stay in the Word. So those gap studies are going to be awesome for the time that you're away. But um, I missed you. I'm glad we're back. Last week, the week before last, I should say, we covered the first part of this letter, didn't we? I gave you some background on this whole dude, this Philemon guy, and that Onesimus and just all the things that were happening at the time when the letter was written. It was a deeply personal letter from Paul, Remember? We talked about how Paul appreciated Philemon, and in the very beginning, the first seven verses or so, he's just praising him and praying to God, thanking him for this friend, that he's heard so much about his faith. And I love that, the idea that, that, that we have these people that walk alongside us that could be hearing and be encouraged by the fact that our faith is strong in the lives of others. And he's sort of setting him up, and he's setting him up for an appeal. And we talked in, in, in that, that time we got together, we talked about how there was like five parts of this foundation that Paul set for the appeal that he was going to give to Philemon. He's going to ask him a really big ask. And so five different things he shares about how he, he wants to build him up to prepare him for the big ask. And so today we're going to actually cover that, um, what the ask was. Today we're going to talk about God's providence and that was part of um, the ask, wasn't it? That was part of the thing that he was going to use to build um, Philemon up to make the right choice. We're going to talk about um, Paul making that two-part plea, the actual words that he says when he asks his friend to do something. And then we're going to finish it with covering the last few verses of the letter where Paul is pledging what he is going to be accountable to in regards to this relationship. So it's this pretty cool um, how Paul always has these big, long, wordy, you know, sentences, some of which are just exhausting, but they all have purpose and they all have weight, right? Well, the beginning of the lesson, if you read your homework this week, and if you didn't, I encourage you to go back and um, and read the first, this letter is like teeny weeny. It's like tiny, tiny little thing, but it's so huge, right? Like just packed. Um, But this week in the introduction, if you'll remember, I quoted um, uh, N.T. Wright, and I gave you this this little thing that he said that I thought was a great analysis. But then I also asked you this question. I asked you, um, where in your life are you playing the part of Paul? Where in your life does God have you standing in the gap, being the one to apply the cross? And then where in your life are you Philemon? Are you potentially a grace giver? Are you potentially looking at being forgiving Forgiving an undeserving, guilty person standing in front of you. And then where in your life are you Onesimus? Are you the undeserving receiver? Are you the person that maybe runs away from God and runs to Rome to try to hide, but yet he just keeps chasing you down? 
And so when you go through this with me today, I, I hope that you'll continue to, to ask those questions. Like, I, there's such value, right, in the weight of, of the actual literal letter and what's really happening in the context. But there's also huge implications for every one of us and how we're to apply it to our personal lives, okay? Don't walk away thinking, oh, it's a cool letter, good for them, and then not see how God wants to use that in our lives. I've, I, it's been wrecking me. I don't know. I'm glad you're here. But it's been wrecking me all week. I'm like, forgiveness? Oh, my word. Like, can we skip past this part? I just want to do the part that I'm good at. You know, I'm bad at this. And so I hope that you'll get in it with me and dig in it with me and let God do some things that he wants to do, some transformation, if you will. Um, Philemon, we're going to start in verse 15. We're going to look at God's providence. Um, like I said, the last time we were together, I talked about those five parts that led up to the plea. There was four different things that we covered. We talked about Philemon's reputation, his character. We talked about how Paul made sure that he, he understood Paul's personal situation because he cared deeply for Paul. He cared about the ministry. He talked about Onesimus's conversion. He shares that with, with Philemon because remember, if you'll remember, how was the letter delivered? Remember? The slave himself, the one who was guilty of theft and running away and breaking the law and potentially looking at capital punishment for what he's done, is standing with the letter and he gives it to his slave owner and he's waiting. And so there's huge implications here when Paul's like, hey, let me tell you, this guy that's standing in front of you is different than the guy that left. And then he goes into telling him about his ministry and how that ministry matters. And it matters. Why does it matter? Because Philemon came to know Jesus, we believe, because of Paul. That he spent time with him on his missionary journey. And that's where everything changed for him. You have those people in your life, right, that have, have been the ones that were, that, were, that were like the instrument of change. And, and they matter, don't they? So when they write you a letter, there's weight. Well, the fifth thing, the fifth part of the foundation that leads to the plea is that he then talks about in verse 15 and 16 about God's providence. And, and I don't know about you. I don't know if you've heard. It's one of those churchy things, right? The providence of God. I hear that and I'm like, yeah, 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 whatever. Why well, was just like, God, do you, will you clarify some things for us? Make us understand what he's talking about here. So let me read verses 15 and 16 and then we'll pause and talk a little bit about it. Verse 15 goes like this. For this meaning Philemon understanding that Onesimus was on the run and he found Paul. Okay, that's what we've been talking about earlier in the letter. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. The third word of that verse impacted me so greatly the word perhaps there's power in the perhaps in this moment you know why because the fact that Paul says perhaps this happened for a reason is him pointing to the fact that I believe in a God who's sovereign above all circumstances and I believe in a God whose providence will make things happen allow things to happen control but also but also release all leading up to God's perfect plan. So, so stay with me for a minute. When you're thinking about this, okay, N.T. Wright says this, that's the most important sentence in the entire letter, that sentence, because he's pointing to a God who's in control of all, okay? Vernon McGee says this. When I started looking up, I'm like, I need some people to tell me about providence. I mean, I looked it up in the dictionary, and that's all fine, but I like listening to what guys, what people say. Vernon McGee says this, providence means that the hand of God is in the glove of human events. When God is not at the steering wheel, he is the backseat driver. He is the coach who calls the signals from the bench. Providence is the unseen rudder of the ship of state. God is the pilot at the wheel during the night watch. And as someone has once said, he makes great doors swing on little hinges. We are the little hinges. He is ultimately in control of all of it. That's what this for this perhaps is why is telling us. That while we can't understand all of it and see it all, we can, as believers in Jesus Christ, trust this is not haphazard and this is not coincidental and this is not about karma or about luck or all the things that we like to say. It's about a God who is in control. John Piper says this about, about God's providence. In all setbacks of your life as a believer, God is plotting for your joy. In all setbacks in your life as a believer, God is plotting for your joy. And I would add that is only found in him. 
that God has this plot and this plan, and that even though the Chris plan doesn't look the same as the God plan, he's got these for this perhaps is why moments in my life that he wants me to point back and go, oh, so you were in control of all that. And so I love that Paul makes this a foundation for what he's trying to tell Philemon. He's trying to explain to him, I'm not just asking you to take back a guy and and, and wipe away all the consequences of his sin. I'm not asking you to do that. What I am asking you to do is to recognize the fact that God's hand is in this, and what does this mean? A couple of things I I thought, whenever you're thinking about God's providence, there was three things that kind of came up that um, seemed consistent with what God wants us to understand about who he is. And the first is this that he cares about the little things. He cares about the little things. Um, it was kind of funny. As I was working through this, and I'm like, okay, I, where's that verse about hairs on your head or whatever? Well, Matthew 10, 29 through 31, goes like this. It says, Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs on your head are all numbered, so do not fear you are more valuable than many sparrows. I was so into that when I'm reading this because I'm thinking, yeah, I mean, I love the fact that Onesimus is just one slave of six million in the Roman Empire, and yet God chases him down in a giant metropolis of sin and activity and finds him. And it's the same for us. Like he's making this clear in Matthew. Jesus is telling us, you know, that we, I I care so much about you that I care about every hair on your head. Well, this is the funny part. You guys will love this. So as I'm coming up with this, this this lecture, I have my prayer team, which I've mentioned before, they're my Aaron team. And they are constantly like texting me. They know when I, when I prepare and they're texting me. And one of them says, I feel like we need to pray for you right now. What's going on in the middle of doing this. Right. And so I text her back. I'm like, God, this, this seems really dumb, and I can't believe I'm going to ask you this, but I have such a bad headache. Like, it's like, it's like my eyes hurt, and I don't want to open this, and I don't want to do this, and my head hurts so bad. And at the bottom of it, I wrote, I can't believe I just asked you for prayer about a headache. How dumb is that? And I sent it. And then I looked down at my computer, and I saw this. I had just typed. He cares about the little things. And then, of course, I took a picture of it and sent it to my prayer team and said, this is where God wants to wreck me. Because I decide what, what's worthy of bringing to him. I decide that, that my stuff is not big enough. I decide that the girl sitting next to me has a bigger story and is more broken than me and that God doesn't care about that. And yet here he is talking in, 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 about the providence of chasing down one little slave who probably just didn't seem to have any value at the time. And how dare I minimize who Jesus is? So, of course, they chastised me in love. But it was really funny that God was like, oh, yeah, Chris, your headache doesn't matter to you? Well, what about the sparrow that falls and what about the hairs on your head? They all matter. God's providence is that he loves us and cares about the little things. The second thing I would say about God's providence is this, that he wastes nothing. He wastes nothing. It, it, it's kind of funny. The, the, as I'm going through this, this, this whole, this phrase, for this perhaps is why, kind of kept flowing over me. I don't know if you moved right past it, but, but I want you to sit in it for a minute and think. Um, the beauty of God's providence is that sometimes we get to look back and we get to see it, and sometimes we don't. Sometimes we, we just don't know, Right? Sometimes I think that we have to just lean in and trust. It's like getting on an airplane and we're waiting for it to take off and we're just kind of like, I don't really know how this is going to work, but I'm assuming I'm going to be in the air and land in New York City. I just got to trust. Well, when I'm thinking through the fact that he wastes nothing, I go back to a time when my kid, my big kid, my big tall kid, who's almost 20, how is that possible since I'm only 25? It's weird, but anyway, it's just weird. When he was a little bitty kid, he would say things to us, and my husband and I, we still repeat them often because they're so weird. He's just, he was just a goofy kid, but one of the things he said, we were in the middle, and I even texted him this week. I go, do you remember why you said this? Because it's a thing we repeat in our family all the time. And he's like, man, I don't remember. I think I got hurt. He got hurt, and he couldn't play in one of his uh, flag football or something, and, and we were upset for him, and we're like, oh, man, I'm so sorry. And then he says to us, well, that's okay because God worked that out for good. And we're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and we'd always look at each other like, where does he get this? It's like, what? And then one day I realized, oh, that's actually good theology. It's Romans 8, 28. <laughs> oh, my kids. Yeah, Romans 8, 28. Genesis 50, 20. God's going to work the thing out. 
because he cares, right? Because he wastes nothing. When your five-year-old has to tell you that, that's, that should tell you that you're allowing bitterness and, and the things of life to kind of get in the way of understanding the truth of who God is. God will work that out for good. And so when I see this phrase, for perhaps this is why, immediately I'm thinking, perhaps this is why a bondservant is now going to become a brother in Christ. Perhaps, perhaps this is why one week when we were late to church and got in a fight on the way, we decided we got to find a church closer to home. And then we end up showing up at this church that was meeting in a middle school. And this weird pastor comes up and introduces himself to us and says, hi, my name is Ron Holton. And we're like, that guy's weird. And we left and we didn't come back. And then we ended up at our church home that has changed our lives. It's brought us community. It's brought us things that we never thought we even needed. Maybe that was on purpose. Maybe for perhaps this is why um, when your kid breaks his arm in a mountain bike race and then it turns into three surgeries and seven weeks of, 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 of antibiotic infusions and a lost semester at school, and maybe, maybe that's what pushes him to do college ministry when he gets back instead of going into doing all the other things you do at college. Maybe. Maybe, perhaps, this is why a 15-year-old kid in Louisville, Texas, goes to summer camp at Young Life's Frontier Ranch and gets the worst news of her whole life that her dad has just taken his life. And she's standing on a sidewalk, and she doesn't know what's going to happen. And this weird new kid comes up and gives her a hug. And she's like, that was weird. And then a lot of years later, she marries him. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, there's purpose in that. Perhaps this is why. Perhaps you have those moments. Perhaps you have the diagnosis. Perhaps you have the messy, broken marriage. Perhaps you have the, the prodigal who's run away and still on the run. Perhaps you've got a job that's been lost. Perhaps you're in the middle of a fight for your life in a million different places, and everybody sitting shoulder to shoulder with you right now doesn't even know. But maybe, just maybe, that, that there's a God who loves you enough that he's not going to waste it. And he loves you enough that he cares about every little bit of it. Maybe. Perhaps. That's what providence was to me. I'm thinking through this and I'm like, okay, God, I get it. Sometimes God does this. Sometimes when you think about the things in life that are completely unfair, I promise you, a 15-year-old kid, you can go back to that 15-year-old girl and she is never, ever going to tell you that that circumstance is fair and that God's going to work anything good out of it. Because when we're standing in the middle of it, we can't see it. A lot of times we have to look backwards, don't we? I'm 40-ish something, something. And I look back now and I see his hands all over it. But perhaps when I look at it, sometimes it's really hard for me because sometimes he allows and permits really terrible things to happen to us, doesn't he? Sometimes he does. And I, it's hard to get face to face with a God who lets that happen. And sometimes he ordains and causes the really bad things. Sometimes that happens too. And that's, that's true because he is God and he can do what he wants to do and he is sovereign. And that's hard for me. However, the thing I think we need to focus on more than that, more than the sometimes, is we have to focus on the always. Always God can control. Always God can direct. Always God can uphold. Always he rules. Always he overrules. And sometimes we don't know exactly what that's going to look like this side of heaven, right? But he doesn't waste anything. I think the problem with us, the problem in our lives, and, I, and maybe not you, maybe it's just me, the problem with God not using the ugly things in my life is me. I'm the problem because I'm not letting him. It's hard. This perhaps business, you can move right through it or you can stop and sit in it in a minute and go, okay, God, you are good. All the time you are good. My life is not good all the time, but you are. The third thing that we learn about God's providence is that his goal, his goal for every one of us is the same. His goal is to shape us into the image of Jesus. He wants to shape us into the image of Jesus, and it's not going to come easy. And, and, I, and, and if you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you some realness right now. If anybody promises you that it's easy to follow Jesus, and it's easy to believe in the providence of God, and it's easy to understand forgiveness and all these things, then, then, they're, then they're telling you lies. It's not easy. But here's what it is not. It is not impossible. It is not impossible because we have the Lord. It's impossible if Chris is trying to do it, promise. His goal is to shape us into the image of Jesus. I'm reading through this book. Um, 
right now, and it, it's called The Prayer, The 40 Days of Practice, and it's by Justin McRoberts is the author, and then there's an, there's an artist that he draws really cool, like these crazy little images that go along. I'll have to put it on the Facebook page or send it out to y'all. It's very cool. But every day over Lent, I've been reading, and it's like you have this little prayer, and here's the beauty of it. It's like two sentences. It's like these really short little sentences, and his point is read it, look at the image, and meditate on it and talk to God about it and see where you go with it. And you know what one of them was this week? And I wrote it down immediately because I'm like, this is our letter. This is Philemon. This is God's providence. It was this. This was the prayer. God, may the reality that I cannot know the whole truth never keep me from bearing witness to what I can do and see. May the reality that I cannot know the whole truth never keep me from bearing witness to what I can do and see. You see, when we try to be shaped into being more like Jesus, sometimes that means we trust when he doesn't take the cup, right? You remember Jesus making the prayer, Lord, take this cup from me, and God said what? Mm -mm. There's many times in my life, and you too probably, and many right now, where you're like, can you just take, can you just fix this thing? You can, you're God, remember? You can fix it. And he says, I'm not gonna. He's going to allow it or permit it, even though he can control it. Sometimes being more like Jesus looks like this, going to see what he's doing and joining him instead of fighting for control and trying to own the perhaps moments in my life. I, 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 I confess this to y'all a lot. I was telling them earlier, I'm like, I confess a lot of things in here and that's a scary thing, but I do. I want control and I don't, I fight him for control sometimes. And I'm like, man, I'm fighting the wrong person. He's for me, not against me. And so I need to try to be more like him. Let him shape me into who he wants me to be. That's part of what providence is. You know, like I mentioned before, um, we went to New York City with my, with my people. And um, we went to a museum because my daughter m insisted. You know, like I said, I'm just really about the pizza and the donuts and stuff. Not donuts. That's, I said donuts, Lauren. See, that's just crazy. I don't even like donuts. Anyway, we went to this, this museum. We went to the um, Museum of Modern Art, and it was super cool. It was also super weird. I'm not going to lie right now. I was the person, you know, joking and laughing in the corner. At times, my daughter's like, Mom, stop. It's art. Well, I did walk into this one room, and I saw, you know, art, this is what I love about art. Art is something that's supposed to evoke emotion, Right? Whatever that is, it can evoke a lot of different emotions. And sometimes the emotion is, that's real dumb. But that, that's me. <laughs> but it was the Museum of Modern Art, guys. So there were some things. That, okay. We'll, we'll do that in an extra session. <laughs> I walked into this one room, and you can put the picture up. Oh, there it is, yeah. Okay, so I walked in. Anybody know who this is? You probably do, some of you. Jackson Pollock. I walked in, and this is, this is my photograph. So you can see where I'm standing. That thing is huge. It's like as big as this whole backdrop is. And I look at it, and it's, it's the paint splatter thing. And if you know anything about Jackson Pollock, um, you know, he, he kind of hit his, his pinnacle in the 50s. And very interesting life, very broken, very sad life, very sad end, of course. A lot of artists kind of end that way, I think. But, but the thing I found interesting about this, my husband, I just kept standing there looking at it. I felt so important, you know, like... I'm in a museum looking at a, looking at a painting. No, my husband walked up to me and he goes, what are you doing? And I'm like, I, I'm drawn to this. And he's like, that's super weird because I like control. I am an orderly person. I like, I like procedures and plans. And he goes, this is so chaotic. I can't believe you're drawn to this. I go, I know, man, it's weird. It's like, I can't walk away from it. And so I stood there for a while and I took a picture. It's the only thing I took a picture of in the whole museum and then, I, and then I went home, and I was working on my homework, and I'm like, I know why this meant something to me, because this, to me, represents the providence of God. And here's why. I did a little research on this. Um, I consider myself an art history buff now, because one painting I Googled. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. Um, Jackson Pollock, I think, yeah, I have some pictures of him actually painting this one. Okay, so here's what's interesting about him, and if you already know this, correct me where I'm wrong. Um, he, he, he painted with a, with a different type of style until about 1947, and then one day he was so frustrated because he had this, this easel up, and he was working on this piece, and he, couldn't, he, just, he just couldn't get anything from it, and so he took it and threw it down on the ground, and he started just drizzling paint all over it, and he looked down, and he went, that's what I needed, that's what I needed to say. 
And so that began what they then called, some called um, the drip technique, but a lot of people mostly called it action painting. And the reason why is because as he was, go flip through a couple of those, would you, Lauren? Maybe you already did. As he's painting, they, this, this was like a, a photojournalism came, and they, they did like this mini documentary on watching him actually do this piece that I saw. And they said it was like watching someone paint in the air. And it was like this, this, this um, performance art because everything was movements and everything was action and it was happening because he paints the thing on the ground and he gets up on ladders and he moves around. And he, this was interesting too, he didn't use paintbrushes. He would use old dried up paintbrushes that were hard or he would use sticks or he would use turkey basters. Or, or he would just pour paint. But it was all, it was getting outside of the expectation of what everybody thought it should be. Because you, you, when you read about it, like a lot of the critics thought it was ridiculous. Because they're like, he just splattered paint everywhere. But here's the interesting thing. This is maybe why I was attracted to it. None of it was chaotic to him. All of it was intentional and planned. Every bit of it. Every line had purpose. Every color that, that, that came out over the other colors was on purpose. It was not accidental. And at first glance, I'm like, that's ridiculous. But then the more you dig in and the more you realize there's beauty in that. He dripped and he drizzled and he splashed and he poured and it was considered drawing in space. This new technique was not received well. It was kind of like jazz music, okay? So like jazz music, is, is, it sounds random, but it's never random. It's always controlled. Always controlled, never random. Working within instead of the external. He was, he was painting from inside instead of looking at a, at a bowl of fruit and, and copying it, okay? So there was something to this that was deeper and bigger than just a bunch of splatter on the wall. Nowhere could your eye rest on one particular area. There was not a point of focus. It was like you're, you're constantly looking and moving and things are changing. In fact, um, again, to my uh, maturity in the world of art history, um, I love the fact that there were like kindergarten classes coming in and then the little uh, the people that work at the museum would sit them all down on the floor and then they'd explain everything. So I kind of like follow them around. And I'm like, talk, you're speaking my language, five-year-olds. And I watched as, uh, as one of the teachers came in and sat the kids down and had them look at this, this piece on the wall. And I'm just like, what's he going to say to them? And here's what he said. He said, I want you to pick out one line and I want you to follow it. Just follow it. And the kids were like, oh, okay. And so here I am. I'm like, move, kids. Let me get up here. I did get in trouble one time. The security guard says, you're too close. I'm like, so sorry. It's for Jesus. Anyway, but it was crazy. Like when you look at the madness of it all and you try to trace one little paint string, you try to just trace it through, it's almost impossible. But it always connects and it always has a plan. I, I thought that's, that's God's providence to me. It's this beautiful thing that looks absolutely out of control and chaotic and makes no sense. But the artist, the author, he knows what he's doing and he has a plan. He cares about the little things, each and every little line. He wastes nothing. Not one space, color, swirl, splatter is out of his control. Every bit of it is planned. He wants me to look, live, and speak and act like Jesus. That's what he wants more than anything. And I have to trust the artist with the details. That's providence to me. And, and these, these four little words for this perhaps is why were hugely impactful to me. I don't know what they meant to you, but to me, Everything pulled together in this letter when I read that. Well, he moves into, after talking about God's providence, he goes straight into the actual plea. Now, we've been building up to it since like verse 8. Like verse 8 through 20 is like the whole thing. But in verses 17 and 18, you actually hear him say what he's asking. Verse 17 goes like this. So if you consider me your partner, remember the word koinonia, the brotherhood of Jesus. He's talking about we are brothers if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge it to my account. Verse, um, that was verse 18. He, two parts. Receive him as me. That's the first part. He's asking him to do this. He doesn't say restore, the pre restore your situation here to the previous relationship. I want everything to go back to the way it was and everybody go back about their business. He's not saying that at all. He's saying there's going to be a new brotherhood and a new relationship, and I'm asking you to receive him as you would receive me. Think back again to the person who is the most impactful for you 
in, in, in the transforming, the eternal transformation in your life? Who is the person? Who is the person that changed everything because he spoke some words or he brought you to something or invited you to Bible study or something happened? And in that moment, you're like, this is, this is what it's all about. And that's who Paul was to Philemon. So when he hears him say that, you receive him as me, can you even imagine what that looked like? How would he have received Paul? It would have looked real different than how he would receive this, this criminal in his eyes who owes him and who is guilty. Receive him as me. The second part of the plea is this, charge his debt to me. Charge his debt to me. Forgive his debt, but charge it to me. Theologians call this the doctrine of imputation. It's the doctrine of imputation. And what that means is I'm going to take some guilt, I'm going to take some bad stuff, and I'm going to put it on somebody else's account, and now your account is clear. Anybody recognize that story? It's the whole Bible. It's what Jesus did for us. The doctrine of imputation. The debt will be paid. The thing I thought was interesting, Paul was never an enabling helicopter parent. Do you realize that? He, he never was going to enable Onesimus was he he was making Onesimus go back and he said you're going to go back and you're going to face whatever comes instead he's going to say I'm not going to take away the debt but I'm going to own it for you never once does he say the word forgiveness but he only implies it by his actions and what he's asking well when we look at this two-part plea I think it's important for us to think about forgiveness in terms of what does God expect from us as believers when it comes to forgiveness there's so many things I, I started reading and looking at verses and I mean we could do this for 20 million hours and talk about forgiveness and we would hate every last minute of it amen but instead I, I just want to share seven quick thoughts with you when you think about forgiveness when you think about forgiveness in light of this letter, but think about it in light of the things that you're walking through, the places that you've been, the places that you are now, and the places that you will go. The first is this, that forgiveness is an action, it's not a feeling. Forgiveness is an action, it's not a feeling. It's most often not easy, and you don't feel like doing it, right? The other thing I find so interesting about it is oftentimes it's a repeated action. Lamentations 3, I think, I can't remember, 3... Yeah, something like that. It says that his mercies are new every day. And you know why we need that verse? Because we need his mercies new every day. Amen? Every single day. I was talking to a friend just recently about forgiveness, and she was saying to me that the hardest part in the heart and the darkest place of this relationship that she had to work through forgiveness was this, that she would think she had it together by 4 p.m. or so. She's like, okay, I got it. Today I am not bitter and angry. Today I am forgiving. And then she'd wake up in the morning and have to start all over again. Anybody? It's, it, it, the beauty of it is, is that we have this word telling us over and over, I'm equipping you for this hard job, and forgiveness is not easy. Forgiveness is an action, not a feeling. The second thing is that we don't earn forgiveness. I, I, this was a truth that was, I, I had to be taught this with almost a figurative hammer on my head. You, you're not going to earn forgiveness, meaning if I'm going to be the one to extend it to you, I'm not waiting to hear I'm sorry and I'm not waiting to see a changed behavior because, see, my forgiveness to you is not conditional based on what you do because you can't earn it. Forgiveness is between me and the Lord and my heart. And it's hard for us to understand that. You know, the Bible even says the Bible doesn't require an ask before we're to extend forgiveness. Do you realize that? There's not something that says, okay, so you wait, and then when that person finally figures out that they did it wrong and they come to you, then you forgive. never says that. That's, that's tough, isn't it? When you're the one extending the forgiveness, when you're the one that's standing there, it, it just essentially bearing naked in front of this person, or, or maybe you're not even in front of that person. Maybe you're standing in front of God going, I am so broken and I am so hurt by this, but yet you're asking me to forgive. And God says, yes. It's hard. It's an offering. Offerings cost something. Well, the third thing about forgiveness is this, that we forgive those who don't deserve it. We forgive those who don't deserve it. Just like I said before, you can't earn your forgiveness. You're going to have the Onesimuses in life who, 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 who are guilty, right? You're not forgiving this person because they're actually not guilty and you just got confused. You're forgiving someone who is guilty. Acts 7, 5, 59 through 60, we hear Stephen's words, Lord, don't hold their sin against him. As he's on his knees, having rocks thrown at him that will kill him. He begs for forgiveness for these people that weren't asking for it. 
John 13, 1 through 17, you know what's happening in this, in this session? This is Jesus washing the feet of the disciples like just like a day before he's about to go to the cross. And this is what's crazy about it. If you haven't studied John, he's washing the disciples' feet. But you know who is included in the disciples at the time? Judas. The one who essentially is going to betray him and send him to the cross. You think Jesus knew that? He knew that. He's God. Okay. And he got down on the ground and he washed his feet. And then when he's on the cross, Luke 23, 34, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They're not asking for forgiveness. They don't deserve it. That's not what forgiveness is. Well, number four is that um, forgiveness is not necessarily reconciliation or amnesty. This was a hard lesson for me to learn. Sometimes the reconciliation doesn't come, does it? Sometimes we don't even see the relationship recovered Sometimes, though, it's a new relationship. I had a personal thing happen in my world a few years ago, a very close relationship in my life, and I thought a relationship that I thought, that I will, it will never be broken. It will never, it's that strong. And something happened, and, and it broke me, you know. And, and I had to sit um, with my husband, and we said, we got to go get counsel. And so we called our pastor, and we sat across from Ron Holton at Payway. I'll never forget, I walk into Payway every time. I'm like, that's where I fell apart on the table, but... Um, I sat across from him, and he gave me a truth that I'll never forget about forgiveness, and he said this. He said, this person who's done this thing, it's okay to remove yourself from that situation. Forgiveness doesn't mean you go back into a hurtful, unhealthy place. It's not what forgiveness is. And I'm like, because I'm thinking in my mind, you know, forgiveness is we do the thing we do, right? We go back and say, okay, well, you did all these things, and I maybe did some stuff too, and okay, I forgive you, and so let's go right back into what we did. And, and my pastor sitting across from me and says, show me in the Bible where it says forgiveness equals reconciliation. Reconciliation is sometimes a consequence of forgiveness. Sometimes it happens, but sometimes it doesn't. And you know what? I, I, it broke me. Because I wanted that reconciliation. I wanted this relationship to be back to the way it was. And it was two years of not. Two years it was broken. But I continued to go back. Okay, Lord, every day I forgive him. I forgive him, Lord, every day, every day. But don't go back to the place that God's not calling you back to. And so for Chris, I needed to hear that. Because I needed to break patterns. I needed to forgive. I needed to get right with my God. And then I needed to pray, Lord, will you do whatever you're going to do with this relationship? I trust you and I'm going to lean in. And I did. It's not reconciliation, but sometimes it comes. With that, I would say forgiveness doesn't remove consequences of sin. There are consequences that occur when you're having to forgive something. We see this in this letter. You know what I'm talking about. There are things in your life that you have seen the consequences that doesn't take them away. When I forgive you for something, it doesn't mean I remove the consequences. Sometimes they're transferred, and that's beautiful, and sometimes they're not. And that's okay, too, because God is a big God, and he cares about the details, and he's not going to waste anything. I love my friend, my friend Randy Daniel, who shares the fact that going to prison was the greatest thing that ever happened to her. The consequences of her sinful, unrighteous, unlawful behavior sent her to a place that you would think would kill her, and instead she found life. She found Jesus. Forgiveness doesn't always remove the consequences of sin. Sometimes the offender pays. Sometimes the debt is transferred. Sixthly, there are consequences for not forgiving. And this is the one I removed and then put back in because I didn't want to read this, guys. I just didn't even want to read it. Because if I'm the person that's to extend the forgiveness, I feel like I have, I have power. But in, in, in reality, I have weakness. Because you may have wronged me, but if I'm not forgiving you, I'm the one in bondage. I'm the one that's got bitterness and rage. I'm the one who's messed up. For, for months and months of that relationship that I shared with you, I struggled, man. I was the one who was in bondage. I don't even know, I, I don't even know if he felt it at all. There's consequences for not forgiving. You know, in Romans 12, 20, Paul quotes Proverbs and he talks about how we're to overcome evil with good. And I really believe that that's part of forgiveness, that we're to overcome everything in the world's gonna tell you. You know, you're justified in your anger and it's okay for you to feel that way and it's okay for you to treat that person this way and blast them on Facebook and talk bad about them at every turn because they did you wrong. Well, you know what God says? God says, leave the vengeance and the justice to me, and you do good. That's all you have to do. If they're thirsty, you give them, you give them water. If they're hungry, you give them food. And I'm going to do the rest. 
but it's hard, right? It's hard because, because when I'm bitter and angry, I kind of sit in it and I kind of I fester in it a little bit and I feel justified and I surround people with me that are going to constantly like confirm, oh yeah, you should feel that way. Well, you know what? That's not what Jesus says. And so get the people that are going to call you out on that and say, you know what? I understand they did you wrong, but forgiveness is about what you're going to do with the Lord and what you're going to trust him with. There are consequences when I don't forgive. And the seventh thing is this, that forgiveness can open the way for love and sometimes forgetting. You ever hear that, oh, forgive and forget? And I always heard that like during this, this season of, of struggle that I had in this one relationship. I kept hearing that and I'm like, that, whoever said that is a real dumb person. You don't forget. How does that even happen? Forgive and forget. Well, I'll tell you, this is kind of a funny story. Um, my college roommate and I, we, we you know, because you're so mature when you're in college. Anybody in college? You're super mature. Um, we had a big falling out, like literally like six months before I graduated. And so here I am with this friend that's been my very best friend. I live in this house with her, and, and now we're not speaking. We're in the same house. We don't even talk. She didn't come to my graduation. I didn't go to her wedding. She didn't go to my wedding. It was this weird thing. And years go by, and we run into each other at a wedding. And it was kind of like this moment of God going, hey, remember, um, I, whatever went down between y'all, you need to forgive her. And I'm thinking to myself, well, she, you know, whatever. I mean, it was all her fault. And God's kind of like, you know, saying the same thing to her. And we talk later. And, and it turns into this whole deal of where we have reconciled this relationship. But it was like six years of no talking. And now we, we're friends again. And it's, it's just crazy what God does. But you know what was crazy about it? Okay, so I grow to love her again. And I grow to care about her again and pray for her again. And it's like God fixes this thing. But one day I was moving. And I was um, opening up some old boxes. I found some old college stuff. And I kind of started flipping through. And guess what I found? I found a letter from her. And I knew it was the letter that she sent me when we had our big falling out. And I thought, I don't even remember why it happened. I don't even remember. Like, I physically do not remember what happened to make us not speak for six years. And here's this letter. And you know what I did? I tore it to pieces and I threw it in the trash. Because I thought, that's what the enemy does, right? Like, I want to forgive and love and forget. I want to do that. But the enemy's going to constantly remind me, hey, yeah, but you know what? Remember what she did? It was a pretty bad thing. And he does that to us all the time, doesn't he? I mean, you have, I don't know where you are. I, 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 I confessed last night. In fact, I told the girls last night, I'm like, I'm not saying this in the morning. You know what happens when I say that? I say it. I'm dealing with some forgiveness things right now. I don't know. I'm, I'm going to guess that you are as well. You know, we don't just arrive one day of like, oh, I got this figured out, do we? It's a constant renewing of understanding what God expects from us. And I'm working through this right now, and I'm reading these, and I'm like, oh, that's terrible. I don't, I don't, but I, I know that I cannot do this by myself. I will go back to, to broken Chris, who didn't speak to her college roommate for six years, if I don't trust him with it, and let him help me love and forget. Only God can do that. Only God can do that. You can't do it. I love you. You're cute. Your hair is cute. I can see y'all. You're pretty. You can't do it by yourself. Can't. Well, forgiveness. Paul's plea. We don't know what happens, do we? Paul's pledge and the end of his letter, and I'm going to move quickly because, as usual, I'm behind. But um, in verse 19, he goes into this. I'm going to read a little bit. I'm just going to talk, and we'll close up, okay? In verse 19, Paul gives a pledge to his friend. He says, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of you, of your owing me, even your own self. I'm going to pause. Okay, this was pretty funny. So, I, again, I mentioned I have teenagers. Anybody have teenagers? Anybody live in that world? Okay, so you probably heard this. I think it's so funny. They always say these phrases, and, like, my husband and I try to decipher them, even if we Google them, and then we try to exploit them and mess them up, and then they never want to use them again. Okay. One of them is my kids, um, Susan does this because all, all the cousins do it too. They're like, ooh, slight flex. Anybody know what that is? Like, ooh, he flexed on him. And so I hear that all the time, and all that means is that's a subtle, like, um, shout out. I'm bragging. I'm doing a subtle brag if you flex on something. So I'll, like, say something one time, and they'll go, oh, mom, slight flex. I'm like, I can't, I can't even keep up. Okay, so you'll be so proud of me. So as I was reading through this, <laughs> I get to verse 19. And Paul's like, I write this with my own hand, I repay it. And to say nothing of you owing me, even as your own self, I'm like, ooh, Paul flexed on Philemon. <laughs> and I go, kids, 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 listen to this. Paul flexes on Philemon. And they're looking at me like, you've ruined this forever. <laughs> yes, one for me. 
So Paul flexes on him <laughs> and reminds him that he owes the greatest decision he's ever made, essentially, is because he came to know Paul. So I don't think, um, some of us in our group meeting got a little mad at Paul here, but here's what I think about our Paul, because I love Paul. I think he's trying to say, there is great weight here. There's great value in my words, because you know me. You know me so well. I, I talked to you about Jesus. We, we changed our eternity together. So don't lose the fact that I'm not just some guy writing you a letter. This matters. So he says, I'm going to take over the debt. Verse 20, he goes on to say this. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you and the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Anybody heard that verse before? Anybody heard that phrase? We've seen it three times. In verse 7, we saw it when he was referring to Philemon, how he refreshes the hearts of those that are in his church. In verse 12, we see Paul referring when he's talking about sending Onesimus back. He's saying, I'm sending you my very heart. And now he's bringing it around and saying, now here's your opportunity to refresh the heart of this slave. Wow, what impact you can now have. I'm asking you to do the hard thing, not the easy, not love your buddies that all look like you and hang out with you. I'm asking you to do the thing that is the hardest, to forgive and to, to, to receive this person that you feel like has, has so wronged you. He goes on in verse 21 and says, Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. I want to be an even more girl. What about you? I don't know what that meant. We don't know, was Paul asking him to not make him pay a penalty? Was he saying, don't let him be a slave anymore? Was he saying, send him back to me? I don't know what he was saying, but he was saying this. I believe that you are so strong in your faith that you're going to do even more than I could ever imagine. Be an even more girl, man. Blow God's mind. Verse 22, he says, at the same time, prepare a guest room for me. He turns into an Airbnb here, says, please <laughs> receive me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. This is a common request. He's expecting a prison release, but more than that, I hope you see what I saw. You know what I saw? I saw a faithful friend saying, you are accountable to me. I want to look you in the eyes and listen with my face, and I want to hear how this thing goes down. Because he sends a letter and then essentially just lets Philemon make the decision, doesn't he? And so he's basically saying, I'm going to come. Do you have those people in your world that are going to tell you the truth? The people that are going to look you in the eye? You know, I've mentioned before, and it just constantly reminds me, my young life leader um, who brought me to Christ, Don Brown, who also had to be the one to tell me about my dad dying, has lived life with me. He's my family. And you know what was crazy about him? I, when I was in college, um, I maybe wasn't walking with the Lord quite like I'm sure everyone else, everyone else in here did when they were in college, maybe. Um, but every time I'd come home on a break, he would see me. It was like God just did it. Like it was like, talk about the for this perhaps is why. It's like everywhere I went, there's Don Brown in my face. I'm going to Tom Thumb. I'm walking around and there he is. You know what he'd do? He'd look at, you know, 19-year-old Chris with my hair all hairsprayed up, looking good. And He'd say this to me. I'd go, hey, Don, how's it going, whatever. And he'd look me in the eyes, and you know what I want to say, don't you? He'd say, how's your quiet time going? And I'd be like, <laughs> hey, did I tell you that, <laughs> you know, and I would avoid him. And then he would, I would see him again. It was like, God, just can't. I was like, seriously, God, stop. Everywhere I'd go, there he'd be. How's your quiet time going? How's your quiet time going? And he never stopped. And it's funny because I tell him that all the time. And I saw him at a wedding recently. And he looked at me across the table and he goes, how's your quiet time going? <laughs> and I go, actually, it's going pretty good now. <laughs> but I love that, right? We need the people in our lives that are going to look us in the eye and say the hard things. That are going to call us to the mat. And I feel like this is what Paul's saying when he's saying, you know, Airbnb a room for me. I'm your person. And I love you no matter what decision you make. But I'm going to look you in the eye. I'm going to ask you what you did. Well, in closing, I got to hurry. In closing, he says this. Verse 23, he names off a bunch of names, and I want to leave you with one thought. He says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends his greetings to you. And this is just a generic sign-off, right? He's just naming the people that are with him. And so do Mark and Aristarchus and Demas and Luke, my fellow workers. And then in verse 25, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. I want to leave you with a thought about that. He mentions Mark. And I didn't know, like, I don't know if you did any research, but I, like, dug into each of these people because I'm like, who, why is he naming these people? Because I'm sure there was lots of people with him. He purposefully lists Mark, and you know why? Because Paul has walked the walk of forgiveness with Mark. Paul has done this work 
with Mark. He's not asking Philemon to do anything that he hasn't done. In Acts 15 through 38, we see that Paul says there was this huge disagreement and they separated from each other and they went off in different directions. There was anger. And they were believers. Can you even imagine being in an argument with a believer? Can you even imagine having to forgive a believer? Happens every day, right? And then in Luke, I mean, 2 Timothy 4, we see that Luke um, alone is with me. And then he says this, but get Mark and bring him with you because he is very useful for my ministry. They reunite. And this would have been well known. So Philemon would have heard about this, that this is a relationship that God has reconciled. And that there is hope in the hopeless. Paul finishes this tiny, huge letter with a pledge, with a word of subtle urging, with an accountability, with the idea that the power of the gospel can transform anything, even irreparable relationships. And so I close fast in a very quick way and say this. Um, where are, are the places that you're Paul? Are you Paul? Because you are. You're Paul. Where do you need to apply the cross for other people? Where are the places that you are grounded in his word and wisdom? Because if you're here, you are opening the word of God. God has something to do. He doesn't just want you to sit and soak it in. He wants you to take it and give it. So if you're grounded in the word and wisdom, you need to refresh, encourage, and challenge the Philemon's and Onesimus's in your life. And where is the place that you're Philemon? Where is the place that you need to receive that unforgivable person and forgive them? That you need to give grace. Where's the place that you need to move past your comfortable faith and do the things that are hard and illogical and inconsistent and unheard of? And lastly, where is the places that you are Onesimus? Where do you need to return with a letter and face your master? Are you unhappy with your life? Are you running and chafed by authority? Are you rebellious and you want to take off? Are you distracted from God because you're mad about your circumstances? I have been there, I am there many times, but we have to do this. Understand that we're transformed and we want to be like Jesus and we need to face the fact that we have to face our master. I love you. I hope you understand that with good news comes bad and, and, and the fact that Jesus came to die and take on your debt is really good news, but that means that there's bad news too and there's bad stuff that we have to endure, but with Jesus we can do it. I pray that you walk out of here today and decide, who am I going to be? Am I just going to take all of this truth that I just found in this tiny little baby letter and just ignore it? Or am I going to let God transform me into the image of his son, Jesus? Let's pray. Father, um, this was so huge. I never saw it coming. I love how you do that. You just smack us around sometimes. And so, God, will you smack us around as we walk out of here today? This was not just for us to to hear and then share with other people only to just be um, those people pointing fingers, but rather you're pointing fingers at us. So God, show us the places that we need to be transformed. I thank you that you love us. I thank you so much for the childcare workers who probably really hate me because I always run late. And Lord, thank you for the girls that are in here and those who couldn't be with us today. Bring us back safely next week. In Jesus' name, amen.